Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. How are you, Kim? I'm doing well, Mark. How about you? Great, thank you. I, I was thinking of a, a wine label question I always wanted to ask you um, on wine barcodes. Do you notice when you purchase a wine if it has a wine UPC code or not on the back or the front or the side? I noticed that it's a whole lot more when I was working in retail because it meant that I had to print out labels, which made it a little bit more labor intensive. But I don't necessarily think that I would pay too much attention to if it had a barcode already printed on it or if it didn't in order to decide whether I wanted to buy that bottle or not. Do you hear this from customers? Well, that's what I was, you know, first, that's what I was assuming that it's more of a retailers thing because of inventory it's Mm -hmm. used and not a consumer thing but I recently had a conversation with a winemaker who wasn't using them so that's why I wanted to kind of discuss this with you so I did a little research because I wanted to know kind of the background of a UPC or a barcode really it was invented in 1952 so the technology of barcoding has been around for a long time and it was first used in like the 80s. And Kim, what do you think was the first product that was ever scanned into a retail? Ooh, how about soda? It's a good guess. I was hoping it would be wine, <laughs> but it was actually Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. Oh, okay. So I, well, mean, I was close to soda. Little history. So there is no requirement on a wine label to have a barcode. But from a retailer's uh, side, it is a nightmare inventory if it doesn't have one. And like you said, as a retailer, you have options in your point of systems to make up a barcode. Right. I had always assumed that the bottles that didn't have barcodes were meant a little more for the restaurant market, actually, because you don't need to scan a barcode if you're serving a bottle of wine at a restaurant. So that was, I don't know, the idea that I always kind of had in my head when I saw a winery that didn't put barcodes on their labels that, well, maybe they were trying to pay a little bit more attention to the restaurant segment of the market. See, that's what I like about doing a show with you, Kim, because every once in a while we're on the same page and and historically that's what I always thought when I didn't see a code I'm thinking wow I found a wine that at one time was on a restaurant wine list and they released it to retail and that's a good thing because it was either a second label or a hard to find thing and I was proud of that but lately I had a conversation where a gentleman brought in a wine a very well known producer and I turned it around to scan it into my system and there was no code and I said to the salespeople, I said why is it no barcode. And the producer, the the winemaker, felt it made the wine look inexpensive and cluttered mm. on the label. Was this a domestic wine it or was. was this a European it wine? Was, it was, well, I'll say it's Orange Swift. I mean, very okay. oh, sure. big producer, but he, he does make some small production uh, cult wines. And one of the things I said to them was, as a retailer, it's an inventory nightmare because you're making up codes and it's, it's just a problem waiting to happen. But the other thing is there's all these national databases that when you scan a product, it can go out and find the catalog and put it on other things for you. So without that, I can't really spread the word that I have this product. Right. And they're a little bit of an outlier because most of the wines that we see that don't have a UPC code on the back don't tend to be American producers. I think there are very, very few American producers that don't put a 
a label on there on their barcode. So I think in that respect, what they are trying to do is give it a different dimension. They're trying to send a different message by not putting a UPC on there. Whereas for European producers, I think a lot of it maybe has to do with the fact that that back label is generated by the country that the wines are going to. So maybe it's easier for them just to not do it because they might be sending wine to two dozen different countries. And I could see the point where design-wise, you, you the space you have on your label is valuable and it does take up a lot of space. So I, I can see that that mm-hmm. point. And, and like you said, Kim, the restaurants don't need it. But nowadays with inventory systems, I would think restaurants would want that, not only for inventory, but for maybe uh, profit and loss to see. I mean, if you didn't have things inventoried or could scan them when you're selling them, that there could be issues with that. Right. It's almost like the, the technology has changed so that now there are many more uses that you can be using that barcode for. And like you mentioned, with your need now with social media and with all of these different websites that can kind of search around and see what wines are available in what places for people, the barcode doesn't just mean that you can swipe it at the store. It's serving these other purposes as well. Yeah, and you can use apps to scan codes to get information on. So if it doesn't have it, it that doesn't help you. And you would also mention, Kim, the other extreme I've seen, and you, you probably come across this, Kim, when you were in retail, there's wineries that every year make the barcode vineyard specific. Have you ever seen that? Like Jordan is a big one, I know. If they go from 15 to 16 vintage, you have to add another code because they change one little number. So it's vin- it's vintage specific. I've seen this all the time. And it on, on the one hand, it can be helpful if you have a large enough inventory of, say, Burgundy, where vintage does make a difference. And you are, you are absolutely paying attention to, okay, this case of wine is from the 2013 vintage. I need to know how much 2013 I have left so that I can differentiate the 2014 from the same producer, same wines, totally same wine, just different vintage. And some stores do make an effort to have different vintages of things or to keep in line that maybe this vintage was better than this other vintage and they know that their clientele is going to be paying attention to that as well. So in that respect, I think it is helpful. But then other ones, if you've just got, I don't know, basic, not just basic wine, but a wine that maybe doesn't have that big of a difference from vintage to vintage, then it's it's a real headache when the barcodes are different for every single year. That's a great point because that benefits the retailer because if you have a Burgundy 14 vintage, you can price it different than exactly. the 15 vintage. Yep. But for a consumer, it's actually in their favor because it's very hard to change pricing if it's just one mm-hmm. barcode. And so. especially if, if you're shopping from a, a place that you are paying attention to the vintage and you know that this year was so much better than this other year and you're looking for that better year and yeah maybe you're willing to pay a little bit more money for that better bottle of wine so for those savvy wine connoisseur type consumers then that i think is very helpful but for the vast number of wines out there i think it's more of a hassle so all the years we've been doing label classes we never i've never i don't know maybe you have but i've never discussed the barcode and i've never no, had yeah, anybody ask, right i've never had anyone to ask well we know to add this yeah, back so in we'll don't add we? that in You 
You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and you can find me at vinitaswineworks.com. So we talk a lot about the stories behind a particular wine or the story behind a vineyard or how and when was something established and this romantic notion of, of wine and the grape grower. And we ran across a very interesting article in Food and Wine Aesthetics that talked about this very topic. And we see a lot um, of chatter on a lot of, I think, wine blogs about authenticity. And do people want to hear about wine stories or are they only concerned with the quality of the wine in the bottle and does it taste good to them? So this was this was a very... I think, an interesting topic for us to explore. So they were looking at if there's saying there's no such thing as a quality indicator for wine, can you use the story behind the wine to be the next best thing? And I am a big story person on a bottle of wine. And to me, it, it, Kim, it could be either the technical story behind it, like what is in this wine, or it can be the personal story behind it. Who Who is behind the wine? Do mm-hmm. you feel that way about as far as stories? I, I think so. But then I think there's also a fine line too, because marketers know that this is important to a lot of people. And it is really, I feel like flipped where now everyone's like, oh, no, we have to have a story. And they'll like make up stories. And it's not necessarily that, yes, there is somebody who went to school to learn about wine and then decided to buy a vineyard and they're actually the people who are there getting their hands dirty every day. When it's real, then I think it's important. But if it's only being used as a marketing ploy and there really is no story and there really are no like actual people that are spending day in and day out getting dirty and making this wine, then then I think it's it's a little shady. And I think over the years, that whole thing has kind of changed where before it was just like, uh, this is what it tastes like. That was the story. Right. That, then it went to, well, this is the guy that's making it. And that was the story. And then now I think the trend has been, uh, oh, they're playing with organics or it's more maybe it shifts to me. Do you yeah. see that? And or- we've been told that, you know, especially from a marketing perspective, that the younger wine drinkers, so folks in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, that they love the story, that the story is what is most important to them. So I think that that is why a lot of this has been getting a lot of play is because there's this shift in, all right, who are we marketing to? Who do we want to get our wine in front of? Who is going to be the trend maker going forward? And is this this generation of, of younger folks? Do you think that is based on that generation is social media based so they want to see that type of social media yeah i think that's a lot of it a lot of it with the visuals when you're on instagram and you're on snapchat and you're on all sorts of other things where you see visually something that's very appealing as it is associated with a wine i i I don't think you can only be doing the images i think you have to have that story associated with it too i could see that like the here's a picture of the winemaker but he also has a dog and dogs yep. are trending and <laughs> I, I can see that or but, like you know these are the these are the the dinners that we also have at our winery or this is the lifestyle that you want that maybe you want and so here let, we're going to associate our wine brand with these other things that you then want to have as part of your life so putting it all together and making it one big appealing package I think it can also go the other way where the story part of a winery over 
overpowers what you're actually getting. In other words, you go to a winery's website and it comes up with this beautiful music and playing a video and it's telling more of a story than what you're actually getting in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So I think it can be a negative thing to hide maybe quality right. of the wine. And I think that that's what, that's what we come back to when I was saying before that, you know, there's almost this false story and this trying to make something that will come across to people as authentic, but really isn't, really is just a marketing ploy. And you said before, with if you go to a wine website and you, you, know, you see the beautiful music and the wonderful pictures, but there is absolutely nothing about the wine on there aside from like goes with chicken, that that is a, a, a real tell that that wine is more commercial, more mass produced, doesn't have this authentic story that goes along behind it. So I don't think it's necessarily the story that people are looking for, but that authenticity. And we throw around this term authenticity all the time. But when you actually have real people behind your bottles of wine and it tastes good, then I think that that really is a successful recipe. So this article was saying the story may bring about authenticity, but it can go it can go both ways, mm-hmm. really. So I, for me, I love when I find a wine and I fall in love with the quality of the wine, and then someone hits me with some interesting story mm-hmm. behind it. I had one an Australian wine. It didn't look like it was an expensive package, but it ended up being a higher quality wine. Love the wine. Then the person tells me, "Well, the winemaker holds the Guinness Book of Records for most piercings on his body, <laughs> almost tattoos." And I'm like, "Wow, you know, this is a great wine, but that story." kind of brought me into it more. So oh, I, I think sense? it's very appealing to consumers if they feel like they have a connection to an actual person who's doing it. So, And I think that that's the appeal of like farmer's markets. You go and you buy tomatoes, but you talk to the guy who grew those tomatoes and you talk about, oh, I want to use this tomato for this recipe or I want to make gazpacho or I want to put it on a sandwich. You know, When you have a person, an actual legitimate person that is behind something, I think that that makes it so much more appealing to you. And that was one of my takeaways from my Finger Lakes trip too was I'm spending time with the person who literally made this wine. Does that make it taste a little bit better to me? You know what? Honestly, probably because now I have that personal connection to that person. And that I think goes a long way towards increasing my enjoyment of the product. And wine tasting is so subjective anyway, that when you add that extra level of sort of mental involvement, I think that can change people's perceptions of things. Yeah, that's a a great point, because not only seeing who's behind what the product is in the bottle, but that being told by that person, this is what I'm putting in that bottle, is the best story you can get in the wine world to me. And honestly, people want to support people who they like and who they know. And if you have a personal connection to a winery, then I think that you are going to want to drink their wines more often. And this is why when people do trips to Napa and you fall in love with a particular wine and you you want to keep drinking that. And I see this all the time with, with folks that when they have a personal connection to a wine or a place that they will support it. I'm glad you say that because we say this all the time. You, our money's very valuable to us. And if you can see who's actually getting your, your money versus corporations that are getting your money, it makes you feel right. better. It's like shopping small business. Yes, you might have to pay a little bit more, but there's intrinsic value to supporting someone in your local economy who is doing the work. And I feel like this this really follows the same the same sort of concept.
You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like more information about Kim, please visit her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like more information about myself, please visit franklinliquors.com. Next, Kim, we want to talk about another wine label story that we saw in the Cork Report about when it comes to wine, don't sell American. And what they're talking about here is when you see the region listed on the label as just American. It's not California. It's not Australia. It just says American Pinot Grigio. Yeah, pretty cool. So what's interesting about this for me is when you see a name of a region on a wine label, that is one of the few things that the government actually says, okay, this has to be the truth. Like this, you can't, you don't have any wiggle room. Like you have to put on that label where the wine is from. And we see this every once in a while with names being, say, quote unquote, borrowed from other places. And is it necessarily illegal? No. Are they trying to pull a little wool over your eyes? Maybe a little bit. And this idea of a label that just says American wine absolutely does this. So if it says American, where are those grapes from? Yeah, and there's all sorts of, the government regulates, if you say, for instance, the, the, the most popular would say California, then 100% must come from California. And then if it says it's from a smaller AVA, that percentage goes, it must be 85% from that AVA. And then if it's actually broken down to a vineyard site, that must be 95% from the vineyard. So there's numbers associated to these statements. But when it says American, Kim, I couldn't find a definition of what states, for instance, that includes. I would think it would be able to include anywhere. There is something on the TTB that says something about if you have three touching states, you, you'd have to put a percentage for each state. So I'm assuming mm-hmm. where, where this has come up is the big brands, Barefoot, I know definitely does this. They just are now saying American Chardonnay or American Pinot Grigio. So they've obviously run out of sources in California and they're going to other states. So I assume if it was Washington fruit or Oregon fruit, they would then have to say a percentage. So maybe they're sourcing, I don't know, Idaho, Idaho. or... Maybe Virginia. Maybe, yeah, which is incredible. Know, Ohio, Missouri. There are lots and lots of states in the U.S. that produce a lot of wine. And the top, some of the top ones aren't necessarily places that people would immediately think of. Texas, I think, is number four. Maybe New York, New York State, Virginia. Those are the top ones. So there's a lot, Michigan. There are a lot of states that people don't ordinarily think of firsthand as, oh, these are states that grow a lot of grapes and produce a lot of wine. But yeah, if you see this on the label, know that it could come from any of these places. And really the, the gist of this article was just like, be transparent. Put on the label where you source your fruit from. And they're seeing it as a, if you don't and you only put America, it's almost like you're trying to hide something. Yeah, and they stated that pretty strong in here saying they hate that it says yeah, America. That it all, it, they, you're it come across something. as dishonest Which when it, you just it, put I that on the label. It is if the TTB is not defining what's required for an American wine. And then I was thinking, well, maybe there's a movement for USA, you know, pride right now, let's say American, to get that consumer to buy our wine. Mm. (laughs) So it's more like like, like the Budweiser of wine, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but it's a loophole because they know they don't have to say where it's from. But So maybe it is California and they want to label it this way instead because they can do that. They don't have to say California. They just, a lot of people like to say that, right? So it could be a marketing 
marketing technique. So yeah, do that you, doesn't make any sense to me. That, well, that these people, people would, the big corporations, they yeah. might have done a survey and it said people right now or have want this pride in USA, America. Right. Buy American. Yeah. You see that it says America on the label. And so therefore you're like, okay, you know, I can be sure that this is an American made product. Okay. I guess, I guess I can see I that part of it, but... <laughs> The surprising thing to me is, and when we talk about this in label classes, people really, if you're on a brand, they don't even notice the source. We talked about this many times. So you could be drinking this wine and then you think it's just the same thing. You never noticed it went from California to American. So the consumer, I don't think matters either way. Or what what I noticed happens sometimes is be drinking a a particular, say, Pinot Grigio that in one vintage is from California and then in another vintage is from Italy or is from Chile or is from Argentina or is from Australia or is even from some other country and they put it on the label it's there in small print they are following the rules but if the consumer isn't paying attention it almost comes across a little fraudulent because you see that brand on that label that you have been buying constantly year year after year and you make the association that this brand therefore means it's from this place and it doesn't necessarily have to and I was reading an article just a couple of weeks ago about some fraud claims of wines that were sold in France and people were assuming that they were French wines and French rosés because they were in like the French section of the grocery store or whatever but in small print it said product of Spain and lawsuits were brought saying that this was fraud because even though it said it on the label even though it was in very small print people were assuming that these were French wines so I think that that kind of ties into the same thing here that the consumer really does need to be aware that even if it's a wine that you've been buying for a really long long time, look at that label if you are concerned about where it's from. You know, now that you mentioned it that way, I'm kind of rethinking this American thing because if it says France or Chile, it doesn't tell us where no. it's from either. So right. I guess this is the same yeah, thing. Just I, it just kind of blew Chile. my mind. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this is an issue with maybe these wines are being exported more often and kind of like we have those less expensive wines that are selling for $4, $5 a bottle and are just generic wines from Chile that will just say product of Chile and won't necessarily tell you that it comes from a subregion. Maybe this is the American equivalent and maybe these are being shipped to a different country where all that matters is, oh, hey, it came from the U.S. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. And you can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. A topic that we get asked about quite often is about the calorie content of wine and how many calories are in a particular glass. How can you know if this wine has more calories than another wine? And then also the sugar, quantities of sugar in your glass of wine and what wines might be better for you if you are trying to maybe consume a little bit less sugar. So there was a great article in the Times of London that really explores this topic. And let's just give our listeners, Kim, a little background on winemaking and how this sugar comes up. So the fruit, the grapes, once it's fermented, that sugar turns into alcohol. But when fermentation is finished, there is still residual sugar left. So that is what is being measured and leads to calories. Right. And there is a threshold that that humans can perceive amounts of sugar. So there can be a little bit of sugar. And in this case, we're talking about fructose, which is fruit sugar, because obviously wine is made from fruit. 
that um, if it's below a certain amount, it's still there, but you really can't taste it. So as the levels of sugar go up in a wine, and a lot of them are natural sugars, although there are some winemakers who will add additional sugar, depending on other factors in the wine, the body of the wine, the alcohol, how high the acid is, um, and we'll get to that in a minute, you might be able to taste more or less sugar in a particular wine. So let's give the, just kind of some ranges so people have an idea of what the sugar is measured. It's measured in grams per liter. So a dry, quote, dry wine would be zero to 10 grams per liter. Right. Then you'd go up to like sweet for the for 35 to like 120 grams per liter. And then dessert wines, which are huge at 120 to 220 grams per liter. And then there's a conversion to calories. But most of the time, they're talking a very small quantity when they give the calories. Right. And that 10 grams per liter is pretty much that threshold that I was just talking about. So even wines that are described as dry, like Brut Champagne is really the classic example, can have anywhere from you know, zero up to, I think it's it's six or seven for Brut uh, Champagne. So you can't really tell that it's there, even if there is a tiny little bit there. Yeah, and there's a lot of factors that will affect the sugar in the wine. And Kim, a lot of them I think we should talk about as far as the grape type matters, mm-hmm. the alcohol content, the type of wine, and actually the time the grape is harvest can affect the sugar levels right. as well. So the longer that the grape stays on the grapevine, the more sugars will develop. So the riper that that fruit gets. And then depending on where in its development that grape is picked, you have not only a higher sugar level in that grape, but you also have what's called potential alcohol. So when a really, really ripe grape is picked and turned into wine, as that juice is being converted into alcohol, the winemaker at some point has to choose when they stop that fermentation because you could have a super high alcohol wine, or you could leave a wine that has a little bit less alcohol, but still has some of that sugar left in it. So I think alcohol is a big um, is a big part of this equation. Do you feel that uh, inexpensive wines have more sugar than expensive wines, or is it a quality thing where sugar is left into... I think that's a loaded question, because there are some quality wines that are left with noticeable sweetness, and there are some, frankly, that are made to be that way. So things that are meant to have a real broad market appeal, even though people say, oh, I don't like sweet wines, tend to have a little bit more sugar left in them. So the one that we, that we see a lot of right now is Apothic. So a really rich, fruity, very tasty, fun wine for a lot of people, but not a dry wine, believe it or not. Apothic has some significant sugar left in there. And honestly, that's what makes it tasty because people really like sugar, but we have this mental block against sweetness in our wines. You know, you might taste it and say, oh, yeah, I really like it. But if someone says, hey, I've got a a sweet red for you, you're like, no, 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 no. I don't like sweet wines. Yeah, maybe you do. (laughs) Yeah. And we talk about this all the time where someone would say you talk about apothic. Someone would come and say, I want apothic. I like it because it's dry. And for us, it's like it's hard to define. What's what's your saying, Kim, when you talk about dry and wet? Oh, yeah. That wine kind of has its own language to it sometimes. So wet isn't the opposite of dry in wine speak. Wet, Sorry, dry is the opposite of sweet. But it's also difficult. You know, your taste buds have have to differentiate between fruitiness, so the flavor of the wine, but then the sugar that's there. And honestly, if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about what you're tasting in your glass, it's really, really hard to do. And there's always some amount of residual sugar left in wine. So there was some marketing out recently where they were saying this wine is better for you because there was no residual sugar, which the 
technical thing of residual sugar can go to a negative level. So if they were thinking if it's in the negative level, it's not technically sugar in there, but you have to be careful with that type of marketing. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, you need to think about the acid level of the wine. And this is just another thing that we tend to think about when we talk to people about sweet wines. You might have a wine that has, say, 15 or 20 grams per liter of sugar in that wine. But if it has high enough acid, the two are almost going to cancel each other out. So that high acid level and acid in wine is a good thing. You know, that's another one of those scary words that sometimes people shy away from. But if you have a higher level of acidity in a wine with some residual sugar, that acid is going to make it taste less sweet than if it was up against a wine with the same sugar level, but didn't have that acidity to it. So that's another one of those kind of tricks that when people taste a wine, they might not even notice or recognize that it has some sugar in it. And that's a good winemaking quality thing. If you have sweet and you can balance it with the acidity, that's good winemaking mm-hmm. taking place right there. And I think a lot of winemakers do think about that because it goes towards the balance of the wine too. You know, you don't want too sweet or too sour or too highly alcoholic. You know, you want all of those factors to be in balance. And that for me is what produces a good quality wine. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine today. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. Please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We'd love to hear your questions and comments, and we will be with you again soon. Cheers. Bye.